0: Okay, we've got a lot of ground to cover with regard to our scripture reading tonight. We're going to do Amos 3 and 4. Um, The sermon is going to focus mostly on chapter 3. But if we just skipped 4 altogether, I don't know. It would just bother me. So we're going to read 3 and 4. Um, Amos chapter 3, you'll, you'll find that in your pew Bibles on... Page 1422. Um, Words will be on the screens otherwise. Amos chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only, you alone have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when he has caught nothing? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground where no snare has been set? Does a trap spring up from the earth when there's nothing to catch? When a trumpet sounds in the city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and the fortresses of Egypt Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, see the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord who hoard and plunder and loot in their fortresses. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. Hear this and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husband, Bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaks in the wall, and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord." Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, I struck them with blight and mildew, locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt, I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses, I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord." I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He who forms the mountains, creates the wind, and reveals his thoughts to man, who turns dawn to darkness, and treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, that's a lot to take in, but I'm going to take you right back to the very beginning of our reading tonight verse 1 of Amos chapter 3 because it contains a very unsettling thought, an an unsettling thought that kind of um, weaves throughout all of the verses that we read. Hear the word of the Lord that has been spoken against you, O people of Israel. It's the thought, it's the thought that God is against you. The idea that those who consider themselves the the people of God, um, the fact that they're not safe from, the fact that they're not immune to the judgment of God, that's a very unsettling thought. But you know, how could this be? Does God not promise to, to be with his people always? Has God not called them out of all of the other nations to be his special possession? has God not promised to be for his people throughout all of the scriptures? well of course the answer to all of those questions is yes but this evening we're going to wrestle a little bit with that truth with this truth in fact that with With privilege, with blessing, with grace comes responsibility. Now, it's true that God is faithful and we are not. And in that covenant relationship throughout history, God proves his faithfulness day after day after day after day. And we kind of um, complete our end of the bargain once in a while, but we fall short so, so often. But a covenant is a two way street. And so, again, with privilege, with blessing, with grace, comes responsibility. You know, one of the most destructive and unfortunate tendencies that we have as fallen human beings is the ability to deceive ourselves. We hear what we want to hear. We emphasize what we want to emphasize. We we focus on where we are strong and where others are weak. We elevate the truth of God's love and, and downplay the truth of God's holiness. We deceive ourselves even in the most serious issue of life, namely what God thinks about us, what God sees in us. And I would actually argue that deceiving ourselves in this way is, when you think about it, a form of idolatry. It is nothing less than trying to create for ourselves a a false God who who doesn't really mind our sin that much and who is not deeply hurt and angered by the ways that, that we rebel against his will. This atmosphere, this culture of self-deception describes the state of 8th century BC Israel just as much as it describes us. But understand and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago as well, part of the problem was that this was also a time in Israel's history where things seemed to be going pretty well. The borders were secure, commerce was thriving, agriculture was flourishing, the middle and upper classes were uh, wealthy and making more money. One commentator even sees evidence that religious shrines were absolutely crowded with worshipers. In other words, they were attending church. That's a good thing. They were observing feasts and, and other religious holidays. They were bringing their offerings and sacrifices But as Amos points to, there was something that was deeply, deeply wrong. And God raised up this blue-collar, gritty prophet Amos to call them out on it. And this is, in essence, what was wrong. The people of God had become fascinated with the material blessings that, that flowed from their relationship with God. But when it came to God himself and what he truly wanted in our heart of hearts, they didn't really care all that much. They were happy to take his blessings, but as far as he was concerned, they would just rather he stay at a distance. So their relationship with the one true living God had become kind of routine and thoughtless and mechanical. And in a lot of ways, because it was that way, they, they had forgotten all of the things that God had done for them throughout their history, and that all of those blessings throughout history and, and those blessings that they were experiencing day after day after day sprang from his love and compassion, sprang from who he is in his very nature and character. And as a result of that, they had also forgotten their obligation to to treat each other, to treat others with that same kind of love and compassion. It was like they had become black holes of blessing. Just keep on pouring it on, and I'll just keep on taking it in and holding on to it for myself. But when it comes to their own relationships... They decided that it was just fine to enrich themselves on the backs of the powerless. And instead of helping those that that were needy among them, they, they added to the struggles and the strife of those who had little. And Amos prophesied that God was getting ready to remind them exactly what that felt like. Unfortunately, the message, by and large, fell upon deaf ears. And Amos 3 tells us why. And Amos 3 also urges us in telling us why uh, not to make the same mistakes. And as I mentioned before, I think it all kind of circles back to that that big, fundamental human flaw that, that we have, that that tendency of human beings to deceive themselves so what i want to talk about tonight this is kind of the structure of the sermon is that the people of god in 8th century bc israel had adopted three dangerous ways of thinking that that caused them to feel uh, immune to the judgment of god okay yes God is a God who judges and punishes those who rebel against him, but but his judgment is reserved for for everybody else, not us. Three ways of thinking rooted in self-deception. And the first, I think, was certainly the strongest. We see it in verse 2. You only, you alone, I have chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. So what I want to get at here is that the people of God pointed to the fact of their election, the fact that they were chosen by God. And to them, this was really kind of their ace in the hole. Their their election gave them the greatest sense of security in their lives. And and as they lived out this way of thinking, they kind of started to interpret their election as as a license to sin, as a license to to kind of do whatever they wanted. It was sort of something that led to a spirit of entitlement, But Amos says, no, 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 that is not. That is not what your election should persuade you or push you to do. The doctrine of election does not grant immunity from the judgment of God. Privileged position, special relationship, does not mean immunity. Instead, privileged position and special relationship means responsibility. And responsibility, as we have talked about plenty of times before, is expressed and lived out through obedience. Now you want a more contemporary, at least more contemporary biblical example, the Apostle Paul actually dealt with this same issue during his ministry. We read about it in Romans chapter 6 where he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. Paul's argument is this. If people thoughtlessly continue in their patterns of sin, it means that they never really died to their sin at all. And we know by God's word and by our own experience that the same is true for us. If we persist in sin and rebellion, we are really nothing but imposters pretending to be followers of Jesus Christ. Our lived out desires reveal the status of our hearts. And so, again, point to take from this section is that privileged position, special relationship with God means responsibility. John Stott, this is, uh, I used John Stott this morning, too. John Stott puts it this way. In a moral world, which this is, sin and judgment are riveted together. Sin and judgment are connected in such a way that they can never be separated. Wherever there is sin, there is judgment. Wherever there is judgment, there is sin. And so circling back to where we began for a moment, if God is against us, There must be moral reasons for that. I mean, look, actions have consequences. Causes have effects. And that is precisely what Amos illustrates with his rhetorical questions in verses 3 to 6. Where he says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when he has caught nothing? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground where no snare has been set? Does a, st- a trap spring from the earth when there is nothing to catch? When the trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Actions have consequences. Causes have effects. But morally speaking, this reality is ignored when people misunderstand and misuse the doctrine of election or uh, depend too heavily on their claim to election. I mean, really, here is the scriptural test of God's election or God's choosing of us. In other words, this is the test of genuine Christian faith. Genuine faith is made visible where there is evidence of righteousness or fruit of the Spirit. And where there is no righteousness and no fruit, there is no true faith. And so, a misunderstanding of the doctrine of election is the first way that Israel deceived itself. But before we move on to the second, let me just point out that part of the grace that is embedded in this a very depressing passage, actually, is that that God did not leave his people in the dark about these things. It says that in verse 7, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. And God did not pull any punches in in communicating how serious and urgent the situation had become. Verse 8, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy. God the lion, God the predator would make himself known, Uh, ignore at your own risk. So the second argument that Israel pointed to that made them feel uh, immune to God's judgments, the second dangerous way of thinking that the people of Israel had developed was this. They believed that their wealth and their comfort was evidence of God's approval, okay? Now, where in our text do we see evidence that wealth had become a problem for Israel? Well, what about in verse 10? They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who hoard plunder and loot in their fortresses. Then again in verse 15, I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. And then going into chapter 4, that um, uh, kind of snide remark about the cows of Bashan um, talking to their husbands about bringing them another drink, of course. Because the nation of Israel was enjoying a time of unprecedented economic security, they thought that they were morally and spiritually secure as well. Amos tells them very bluntly that this is not the case. Again, they were deceiving themselves. The way wealth was was viewed and and understood in the 8th century B.C. Israel served to give these people a false sense of security. Wealth was not only driving a wedge between the haves and the have-nots, wealth was, was driving a wedge between the people and God, and their wealth, sad to say, was not going to protect them from their judgment. And this, too, is a reminder for us that prosperity, uh, which certainly is a blessing that comes from God, does not necessarily signify divine favor or the approval of God. In fact, in Scripture and throughout history and even in our own experience, it is oftentimes the unrighteous who seem to be prospering. And this is bound to happen in a fallen world and happen often. Conversely, as a side note, going through hardships and struggles and trials do not necessarily mean that God is punishing you either. The point is this. We do not want to be deceived about wealth and faith, and so we strive to keep those things in their proper place. Now, to summarize so far Israel was deceived in the way they understood their election by God. Israel was also deceived in their understanding of wealth and what it signified. And finally, Israel was deceived in the way they approached and practiced their religion. More specifically, they thought their religion protected them from the judgment of God. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Hear this and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. the reference to the horns of the altar is meant to represent the idea that the altar um, was a place of safety, a place to seek asylum. So that said, understanding that with the, the horns of the altar gone, there would be no place to hide or be protected from judgment. Whether you study the Old Testament or the New Testament, the message comes across loud and clear that God hates pride in religion. Religion without repentance is an abomination in the sight of God. And so the overriding message of Amos three is the inevitability of divine judgment. Judgment will certainly come the wages of sin is death. But thankfully, we are never to take a passage of Scripture in and of itself out of context. One of our reformed tenets, one of our reformed lenses as to how we view Scripture is that we look to the whole of Scripture to reveal the fullness of the gospel. I mean, it would be discouraging, let's face it. Uh, Even devastating if all we had of God's revelation was Amos chapter 3. Even the entire book of Amos, I don't think, would satisfy me. Uh, No, we cannot stay in Amos. We cannot stay uh, in the Old Testament either. It is true that God's love is unbalanced without his judgment. His love is holy. But it is also true that his justice is unbalanced without his love. And where does God's love and God's justice come together in the perfect way? In the cross of Jesus Christ. So if we want God to stop saying to us, as he was saying to 8th century BC Israel, I am against you, we must remember and cling to how God says I am for you. God has said, I am for you, ultimately, comprehensively, perfectly, eternally, in Jesus Christ. Christ completes the picture of this message of judgment in Amos chapter 3, and only in Christ can we honestly claim that God is no longer against us. In fact, it is only in Christ that we avoid the errors of the people of God in the time of Amos. It is only in Christ that our election gives us true assurance of our salvation. It is only in Christ that our wealth is enjoyed as a blessing to ourselves and to others. It is only in Christ that our religious practice is exercised to the the glory and pleasure of God. So brothers and sisters, let us humble ourselves in the shadow of the cross. Let us confess again that we deserve nothing but judgment and condemnation. Let us constantly turn from that sin, our sin that caused the death of God in Christ and earnestly look to God in Christ to transform us into the likeness of our Savior and our Lord and our King. Brothers and sisters, that is the responsibility that comes with faith. Amen. Let's pray.